I would venture to guess that there are many of you, most of you probably, who love much about Christmas. You enjoy uh, family get-togethers, the trimming the tree. You la- like uh, Christmas shopping. My, wa- my wife loves it. Um, you like wrapping presents, opening presents. Now, that, that I like a lot. Uh, going to Grandma's house over the river and through the woods. Um, you like singing the Christmas songs at church, playing the old popular songs, maybe in the car. Uh, you like uh, the jingle bells, and uh, maybe you like White Christmas. Maybe you like to watch the movie White Christmas. I enjoyed that one. Um, you like watching. I had a family tell me the other day they, they watch Elf every year. It's a family tradition. Maybe you are a little older school and you like Miracle on 34th Street. But you you love eggnog and hot chocolate and and you uh, participate in, in putting money in the Salvation Army kettle. You enjoy doing that, knowing your donation is going to help a child who may not have a good Christmas. You know, so much surrounds us during the Christmas season, and so much vies for our attention. These are all very good things, everything I mentioned there, and in and of themselves, they're wholesome traditions, and they may have been practiced in your family for generations. Some of you are less inclined to embrace all that comes with Christmas. Uh, you, You don't really like to invest in commercial side uh, of Christmas, the time, the energy, the money into presents, um, and so forth. You would prefer to celebrate, keeping it simple, going to church, reading the Christmas story from the Bible with your family, maybe watching a Christmas movie like The Nativity. I decided a few years ago I want to watch that every year. I cry every time when that movie is on. I love it. it. It speaks to my heart. And and, and you like to keep it simple and focused on the reason for the season. But I want to help you evaluate today the believer's response to all things Christmas. And hopefully I'll do it without damaging or disparaging some well-loved tradition that's yours or your family's. How many of you, let me ask, how many of you used a search engine to search for a present or something about Christmas on the Internet? How many of you did that? Most everybody that has Internet. If you looked up uh, something to buy on Amazon, you had to go into the search engine right there at the top and type in that very expensive gift for your wife or your husband. Uh, You went to Walmart, maybe, and used their search engine. Maybe you used Google or Microsoft or Yahoo. There's a myriad of those out there. Maybe you were looking for the best price on an item or a tasty recipe, something new to try out in the family to make Christmas dinner a very special time. Right there in front of Thanksgiving, I used the search engine to find how to carve a turkey. Uh, you know, sitting at the kitchen ta- or at the dining room table with all this beauty like you see on TV and carving the turkey, that, that's not real. You can't do that. You've got to debone that thing. And uh, you can make a beautiful presentation. In fact, I think I did it pretty good at Thanksgiving. So I want to begin the message today by showing you a little video called the Christmas search engine. And as you know, when you use a search engine, you don't have to type in complete sentences. Search engine is looking for keywords that help the software find the information you're looking for. And you'll hear some of these incomplete sentences in the video as people share with the Christmas search engine what they're looking for. So let's watch that. Hey, welcome. I'm the Christmas Search Engine, and I can help you find anything related to... DIY Christmas decorations. Oh, okay. Um, Let's jump right in. Here we go. (laughs) What date Christmas this year? Uh, December 25th. What date Christmas next year? 
December 25th. Song that goes. I think I know what you're looking for. How cook ham? Okay. How cook ham fast? Uh. Oh, ham flamethrower recipe. Wait, what? Christmas present, mom. Nice. Cheap. Nice. Wed day Christmas 2035. Are you serious? Is Santa Claus real? Uh, you should maybe ask your parents about that. Gift wrap bowling ball. Please be careful. Custom dog Christmas. Sorry, what? Christmas dog custom cute. Oh, you mean costume? Christmas dog costume cute! Gift wrap accordion. Uh, that's gonna be tricky. Can I drink expired eggnog? No. What happens if drank expired eggnog? Why'd you even ask me in the first place? Dealing with relatives. Okay. Dealing with nosy relatives. Oh, uh, well... Dealing with my nosy, overbearing relatives who won't stay out of my business. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, it's pretty much all the same stuff. Gift wrap a saddle. Who are you buying this stuff for? Santa Claus riding a unicorn. Santa Claus riding a unicorn socks. Is that a thing? Search it up. Oh, wow. Here they are. Take my money. Norwegian tree skirts. How many lights, one outlet? Elf pajamas. Dog singing Christmas carols. <sighs> oh. Hello. What is Christmas really about? Hmm. I've got just the thing. appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. So, Jesus? Jesus. May I? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Huh. How fixed burnt ham? Okay. You know what? Forget it. Pizza delivery Christmas Eve. No problem. I think this little video we can relate to very well. It's clear in all of our hearts what the purpose for Christmas is all about. And in spite of the clutter that bombards us around the Christmas season, there is this one foundational piece that stands high above the rest. Christmas is about Jesus. Christmas is about Jesus who is God. And Christmas is about Jesus, who is God, initiating an expression of love so marvelous for us as humans that and it's so profound that 2,000 years later, we are still trying to explore the depths of what it means and to experience it in our lives. I want to just leave, start with this exhortation this morning. Do all that you can to guard your heart from making any part of Christmas something more than what I just outlined. That Christmas is about Jesus. Don't let something else supersede that. Guard your heart from being sucked in, drawn in, enticed by anything above that. Our month-long Christmas sermon series for 2021 has been another attempt to lift the Savior high in our eyes. He's the one who loved us and gave himself for us. And we have been exploring a four-word description ascribed to Jesus in the Christmas story. We discussed the miracle and the mystery. Next week, as Pastor Stephen says, he will wrap it with the majesty. And today we will talk about Jesus the Marvel. And he is marvelous, is he not? Psalm 118 says in verse 22 and 23, The stone which the builders rejected 
or refused is become the head of the corner. It, in the King James, which I really love, it says it's, he's become the chief cornerstone. It's what we build our life on. And then in the next verse says, this is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. And I think we can also say without doing any damage to that scripture, he is marvelous in our eyes. Everything about him is a marvel. And I want to look at that this morning. I would like to use for this morning two passages, one in Matthew and one in Colossians. I'll save the Colossians passage for a bit. And it was actually a portion of that was read on the video. Matthew 1, 18 through 23. Now the birth of Jesus was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with of the Holy Spirit. And then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary's wife, for the conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Now my deepest desire is to communicate the following to you through preaching today. Here it is. Put it up there. For the believer who has accepted the work of Christ for salvation, and whose main purpose in life is to live a life consecrated to him, there can be only one superlative response to the celebration of Christmas. That superlative response is worshipful wonder and awe in Christ himself. And I'm going to attempt to give you many reasons today why everything else we experience at Christmas, good as it is, comes and should come at a very distant second place to the beauty, the miracle, the mystery, the majesty, the glory, the power, the plan, and the purpose of Jesus, God's only begotten Son. An older hymn that we used to sing at Christmas time, perhaps you've sung it, sound, reads like this, Thou didst leave thy throne in thy kingly crown when thou camest to earth for me. But in Bethlehem's home there was found no room for thy holy nativity. O come to my heart, Lord Jesus. There is room in my heart for thee. O come to my heart, Lord Jesus. There is room in my heart for thee. Will you make room in your heart? Not a little bit. Not a cursory glance or a passing thing. But will you make room in your heart to worship Christ as King in, at Christmas, this Christmas? To marvel at all that he is and to enthrone him as King. I want to exhort parents in the room of, 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 who have school children still at home. Parents, I exhort you today, lead your children past the tinsel and the Christmas decorations. The... Playstations and the clothes and the other things that they might get, the lights and the gift wrap presents, lead them to the manger, to the miracles, to the prophecies about Jesus, to the ministry of Jesus, to the stories of the supernatural moments that, uh, record, that record not only the wonder and awe of his coming, but the splendor of and glory of why he came. When my boys were small, we did Bible reading a lot with them, daily if possible. 
We had wonderful discussions. I've told you this before, but I've not told you this. There were times, and I didn't do it all the time, but when I felt it was right to do it, I would, after we, I knew God had been speaking to us in those moments. We tried to keep it simple for them to understand it. But I would say to them, I'd say, you know what? One of these days, God is going to call you to be his He's going to call you to be his son. He's going to let you know that he loves you personally. And when he calls you, you're going to say yes. You're going to say yes. I didn't try to press it to happen right then. I was trusting the Holy Spirit to do his work in his good time. But I exhort you parents who still have children at home, spend quality time in the word of God. And at Christmas, what a glorious moment that you could have. And encourage them to know that Christ died for them. He came for them. He loves them. And when he calls, they'll know it. And they're going to say yes. Why not plant that in their minds? Amen? Here are the big points of the Matthew passage we just read. I'm going to go through them just kind of like an outline. Verse 18, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Now, before Joseph and Mary had any intimate relationships, something's happened. And I believe, I believe that she became pregnant, she conceived at the word of God. I don't know if it was right when the angel said it. The angel said, the Holy Spirit will overshadow you come upon you, will conceive. So I don't know if it was then or sometime later, but I believe it was by his word that he was that Jesus was conceived. Verse 20, And the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph to bring peace to his troubled soul. Scripture says Joseph was a righteous man. He didn't want to embarrass Mary. He did everything he could to keep it quiet. He was going to go to dad, her dad and say, let's, look, let's just call this thing off. It's, it's not going to work. And he wanted to do it to continue to honor her and not dishonor her. But before he could do that, the angel comes and says, hey, this child is of God. You can go ahead and take her to be your wife. It's all going to be okay. The angel tells Joseph what name to call the son who is soon to be born. The angel declares the purpose for which Jesus was born. And then Matthew puts his words to it. He goes away from the dialogue about the angel, what the angel's saying, and Matthew says he quotes a prophecy, and he doesn't even tell us who the prophet was, but it is, it's Isaiah. And in Isaiah 7, chapter, 14, uh, chapter 7, verse 14, there is that very word that Matthew quotes. And if you read chapter 7... It's really, to me, it's not all that much about Messiah's coming. It's kind of an obscure little verse in that verse 14. But he says, a virgin, this will be a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and, she, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, you might ask, as I have, well, why didn't Mary and Joseph call him Emmanuel? Well, the angel said, call him Jesus. That's going to be official name. Actually, he said, call him Yeshua. The angel tells Joseph to name this miracle child Yeshua. But the prophecy said he would be called Emmanuel. Let me explain how I think that works. My wife's name is Susan. I had a crush on a little girl in the second grade. Her name was Susan. And since that day or that season in my life, I've always loved the name Susan. It's been one of my favorite female names. And God gave me a wife whose name is Susan. I didn't go seek her out. God brought her to me. And I love to say her name. I've told her that. It's one of my favorite names. And when I say your name, well, maybe sometimes when I'm not angry with her. But, but when I say your name, I say it affectionately. 
But her dad didn't call her Susan. He called her Tudor. And I'll leave that to your imagination as why he called her that. I don't really know. But when I met them, they had a pontoon boat, and it had two nicknames on the side of it. And one was her sister, Aline, and I, I can't remember what that word was. It also started with a T, and then it had Tudor. And the boat was named to the two girls. But he called her Tudor. My sister's name is Mary. Mary Frances. She's seven years younger than I am, and when we were growing up as kids, I was considerably older. As she got a little older, I didn't call her Mary anymore. I, didn't, I don't know that I ever really called her Mary. At some point, I started calling her Kid. And I called her Kid all through elementary school. Kid, come here. Or, hey, kid. It was just Kid. Well, when I got in college, I came home for summer break. I remember this. And um, she was about 14 or 15, something like that. And I said, hey, you know, I, th- I, th- I called her Kid. And I said, you know what? I think I'm going to quit calling you Kid. That That's... I'm going to start calling you Mary. That's, you probably don't like that. And she goes, oh, no, don't stop calling me kid. I love it. So I've called her kid. And uh, that's her nickname from me. So the answer to the seeming conflict in names for Jesus in Matthew is this. His legal name is Yeshua. But he could be called many names throughout his life. And Emmanuel would be one of those many names. Actually, uh, the Greek form for Yeshua is Jesus. And he was also referred to in Isaiah 9-6 as other names. I want to read those for you. This is a beautiful Christmas verse. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The prophet Jeremiah writes of a king who will reign wisely in Jeremiah 23.5. He's also prophesying of the Messiah. And he says, and I quote that verse, And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. He will be called Jehovah Sidkenu. You may remember a couple of summers ago when Pastor Stephen was on his sabbatical, we preached through a bunch of those names. And we showed you in every sermon how Jesus is the very essence of that name. I don't think any of the disciples ever said, Hey, Jehovah Sidkenu, what do you think? He just, they just didn't call him that. But you can call him that. You can call him Wonderful. You can call him Counselor. You can call him Everlasting God, Everlasting Father. And here's what I'm going to do. I've prepared a PDF of 100 names of Jesus. There's over 100, but I have 100 on this PDF with the scripture where you can go find it. And when I post the MP3 of this message tomorrow on the website, I'm going to put over to the right of it, go to living-waters.org forward slash media, scroll down to where the MP3s are, and you can listen to former sermons there. I'm going to put that document there, so you can download it. And you can use those names when you worship, when you pray. They're wonderful for adoration praying. And so I encourage you, if you certainly for those online who may have never seen or heard all the names of Jesus, this is a great resource. So there will be a little icon out at the right-hand side. It looks like a document. You right-click it. It's a PDF. It'll say, do you want to save it as? You can do that and download it into your computer or your phone. Matthew writes in verse 22, So all this was done that it might be fulfilled. He says those words. Jesus fulfilled. Another reason I want to share this is the marvel of who he is. The fact that Jesus fulfilled so many prophecies is a marvel when you examine some evidence I'm going to show you here. I The following that I'm going to share with you, I got from firmisrael.org. That's the Fellowship of Israel-Related Ministries. Uh, it's the website of Wayne Hillston and Company. Many of you have related to that ministry. I think a number of us used to join uh, firm 
for online prayer that was global. People from all over the world were on at the same time to pray for Israel uh, some time ago. And so I've gotten that from his website. And his website is not just to educate, it's to, uh, it's to evangelize. And so if a Jewish person is seeking to find the truth about who Messiah is, they might be led to this website and they can find uh, evidence there that proves to them, helps them get faith to believe in Yeshua as their Messiah. He says on the website, the Bible is full of Messianic prophecies. And this mathematician, Peter Stoner, counted the probability of one person fulfilling even a small number of them. Now, I'm going to share with you kind of like three different facets of this. So try to, I'm trying to be simple and concise, and you keep them separate. But he concluded that the chance of a single man fulfilling just 48 of the prophecies found in the Tanakh, the Old Testament, the Jewish Old Testament, would be 1 in 10 to the 157th power. Now, the Tanakh, I think I have that ready to go up there. The Tanakh is an acronym, that word, derived from the names of three divisions of the Hebrew Old Testament. The Torah, which is the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then the Nevim, which are the prophets, and then the Ketuvim, which are the writings. I just throw that in there for free. Jesus not only fulfilled 48 specifically Messianic prophecies, he fulfilled more than 324 individual prophecies that weren't direct about the Messiah, but related to the Messiah. So, do we have that slide that has 10 to the 100? To, no, not, not that one. The one. Did I have the one for 10 to the 157th power? I think we canceled that one, didn't we? So, take that down, because I'm not, you're, you're ahead of me there. So, if, he, if it's 10 to the 157th power, that's a, that's a number we can't, we don't even have a name for that one chance in all of that to fulfill 48 of them, what is the number when he fulfills 324 of them? It's massive. That's, that's an impossibility. But with God, to help us understand this further, Stoner draws it down simpler and he applies this science of probability to just eight of the prophecies in the Tanakh. So this led him to conclude that the chance of the prophesied Messiah fulfilling eight of them is 10 to the 17th power. That's one followed by 17 zeros. The other night I was looking at this and as I was preparing, and I just thought, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to text Matt Maxwell on this, Matt is teaches higher math at uh, Cornerstone, and I figured he would know something about this. So I inquired, and he said, "Yes, that's that's absolutely the way it would be." And he said that number right there is actually one hundred quadrillion. That number does have a name. And in order to comprehend the staggering probability of just eight prophecies fulfilled. Here's what Stoner says. We take a hundred quadrillion silver dollars and lay them on the face of Texas. They will cover the state two feet deep. Two feet deep is a hundred quadrillion. Now mark one of those silver dollars with a black magic marker, pitch it in the batch, Blindfold a man, drop him down in the center of the state and say, walk around for a while, and when you think you're over the one that has the black mark on it, pick it up. And it's one in a hundred quadrillion chances he's going to get the right one. It's impossible. It's impossible. Our God 
established a pattern and a plan so that the baby we see in our nativity set at home, which is symbolizing the Christ, he fulfilled every prophecy given throughout centuries and millennia where God was speaking and he fulfilled all of those prophecies. Isn't this man, Christ Jesus, marvelous? We worship him for making the impossible possible. He is perfect in all of his ways. His purposes and plans are beyond our comprehension. And perhaps you right now in life are staring down some unknown season in your life, and you don't know what lies ahead, and anxiety and frustration or worry and doubt are trying to rob you, and you don't know how to navigate. Listen, my friends, if God's plan for Jesus was so precise, so gloriously perfect, so awesomely profound, can you just let go of what you don't understand and trust Him? Fall before Him and worship Him in awe and wonder. The reason that the night in Bethlehem was so marvelous because there had been no voice, no fresh voice of God on the earth for 400 years. God had not spoken through a prophet, a preacher, an evangelist, nothing. He went silent for four centuries. The darkness that was on the face of the planet was deep and darker than we can imagine. We hear of missionaries who go into cities, countries, and they say, it's a dark place. What do they mean? What they mean is that they sense the power and the presence of evil forces. It's in the people. It's in the government. It's in the businesses. It's in the education. It's in the religion. Because there's no revelation of God in Christ. From the days of Malachi until the night, that beautiful night in Bethlehem, this whole planet was in spiritual darkness. But the prophet Isaiah in chapter 9, verse 2 also said, The people that walked in darkness have seen a, what? Great light. Jesus explodes on the scene, pushing back this darkness that had set up such a domination over mankind. It's hard for us to fathom that. The light of truth and the plan of God in Messiah came quietly into Bethlehem. But I believe there was an explosion in the heavenlies. And there was probably warfare. And it showed up in babies being killed, all kinds of things that was trying to destroy him. God came. An explosion of joy was happening. And we see it when the angels come and sing as the heavenly host. I want to share this, le- this thing before we go into our next scripture. And I want you to listen to me carefully. What if you had been born in that 400-year You could have lived and died and never heard about God's love. You could have been in such darkness. Now, there were prophets and there were there was prophetic writings. There was the Torah. But I'm telling you, it was few and far between. And there's no fresh word of God, no revelation. Let me tell you, folks. God, in his plans and providence, caused you to be born on this side of that night in Bethlehem. You know of the marvel of his birth, his divinity, his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection. You were born in your own life's darkness, but you were also born in a world where the light of Jesus is shining brightly. You were born in a time when Emmanuel is a reality. God is with us. There's a little line in one of those songs we sang this morning that said something about God would be with us again. 
I, I, that pricked me just a little bit. I'm not sure that's exactly stated right because God is with us now. Now, I think what it meant was God was coming, Jesus was coming back. I really think that's what it was after. God hasn't left us. God's not gone. God is here. It's a reality. Won't you join me in worshiping the one who made all this possible this Christmas? Well, let's look at Colossians 1, 15 through 20. This fits our theme, which is the res- this one superlative response as believers to Christmas is wonder, worship, and awe. That's what we're trying to get at here today. Let's read this together, Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Paul writes, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by Him and for Him. He is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. So that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased all his fullness dwell in him. And through him to reconcile to himself all things. Whether things on earth or things in heaven. By making peace through His blood shed on the cross. Amen. First thing I want to share with you about this passage is Jesus is the image of God. Jesus is the image of God. We all know how strong DNA is. I marvel at that. I'm looking at my granddaughter photographs. I was out there not long ago to... Hold her in person. She'll be here, the good Lord willing, next Sunday evening for a week. And I marvel that she looks so much, in my opinion, like her mother. She's got features of her mother, her lips, her nose, her eyes. It's like Ginger is looking at me in a little baby. DNA is very strong. It can show up when the son looks like the father or the daughter looks like the mom or or vice versa. The daughter might look like the dad. It can even show up in different generations of the same family. My cousin, Nancy, her maiden name was Rutherford. Nancy, I've seen pictures of her when she was in her 20s. I've seen pictures of my grandmother, her grandmother, Whitehead, in her 20s. They might as well be identical twins. It's amazing. And she doesn't look as much like her mother as she looks like the grandmother. DNA can also be seen in weight and body build and mannerisms. Sometimes I look in the mirror and I go, Clyde, is that you in there? I'm looking like my father. uh, That movie, uh, what was the movie, Disney movie where they held up the cub? Lion King. Maybe that's not so far from the truth. Dad's there. But when Paul writes here that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, he's not referring to the shape of his nose or the kind of hair he has, the color of his eyes. He isn't even referring to something like a picture or a photograph. Now, the Greek word we have here is a con. And I have a, I have a, software on my computer that pronounces Greek words for me because I'm not a Greek scholar, and it's akon. I think it might be the word we get icon from. I don't know. But it means a perfect replica, a precise copy, a duplicate, something even more like the original than a simple photograph would be. Sometimes in Greek culture, that word could mean a picture or, in their day, a portrait. But here... Icon goes beyond a picture or portrait because the image of God carries the idea of revealing the nature and the personal character 
of God. Jesus is not merely a portrait of what God is like. He actually is the revelation of who God is. That's what Paul means. Jesus said in John 14, 9, Anyone who has seen me has what? Seen the Father. Jesus is the perfect image, the replica, the precise copy of God. Through the centuries, kings of the earth always want sons. Why? Because typically over years in antiquity, women couldn't hold the throne. So you've got to have a boy. You need to have a son. And if they didn't have a son to take over the throne, they would be extremely disappointed. And if their wives bore them that firstborn son, I'm sure they would look into the face of that child and see him as one day ruling the kingdom. Saw him taking over his father's reign as king, sitting on the throne, representing all that it meant to the monarchy. Even in a newborn baby's countenance, they could imagine a ruler, one who's authoritative with men, one who could lead the best of them, one who would bring even more prosperity and glory to the kingdom. They were imagining this baby as bearing the image of his father in all points of stature and goodness, character, strength, and leadership. The family would imagine the reflection of the father's best personhood with even greater possibilities for days to come. Jesus, the Messiah, even in his nativity, in his infancy, was the express image of God himself. Mary and Joseph were looking into the face of God. And I don't care if he was newborn, three years old, 12 years old in the temple, 15 years old learning the carpenter business. I believe in all of this time, every day of his life, his parents, his grandparents, his neighbors, his playmates, they saw the image of the invisible God. We marvel that God came in human flesh, born in lowly estate and raised in very simple terms. Yet angels sang of His royal birth. Shepherds came and worshipped Him, and eventually wise men from the east traveled miles and miles to pay homage to Him, bringing Him costly gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. This Jesus the image of the invisible God. Secondly, Jesus is the firstborn of God. Paul says here he's the firstborn over all creation. Now, without revelation and explanation of this portion of the verse, one might think that Jesus was created by God. And there are some religions that believe that, that God created Jesus. But that's not what this means. The Greek word for firstborn is prototokos, meaning first in rank or honor, not necessarily first in origin. It has to do with birthright, and Jewish people understood birthright. The firstborn is the ranking heir, the honored one who would get a double portion of all the inheritance. Jesus is the heir of all that he created. We're going to show you that in a minute. Once again, we discover reasons to be in awe of this wonderful and awesome God. All that we see in the ordered universe, the beauty and the splendor of creation, the might and the power of nature, the vastness of space and galaxies, all of this He made. Jesus was and is the creator of the universe and the firstborn of God. In chapter 8, Jesus is in the temple being approached by the Pharisees who are doing all they can to discredit him. They get into a rather long discourse about Jesus' self-revelation. Who, who do you say you are? They're asking. Jesus tells them that they're not of God as much as they think they are. Oh, he burns them so good when he tells them that if they were of God, 
They would understand him. They would understand his message. The Pharisees snapped back saying, oh, you're nothing but a Samaritan. You're, you're, you're controlled by a demon. And to be called a Samaritan in that day was about the most degrading thing you could say. To say you have a demon says you're in cahoots with the devil. Right there in church they were saying that to him. Jesus then responds with these words, and I want to use the New Living Translation because it, it helps me understand it a little bit better as to what he means by what he said. Jesus answered, let's show that slide, if I want glory for myself, that doesn't really count, and that's not what I'm doing. But it is my Father who will glorify me. You say, He is our God, but you don't even know Him. I know Him. If I said otherwise, I would be as big a liar as you are. I'm telling you, He's burning them. But I do know Him and I obey Him. Your father Abraham rejoiced as he looked forward to my coming. He saw it and was glad. And then they answered back, You aren't even 50 years old. How can you say you've seen Abraham? Some ancient manuscripts say, Has Abraham seen you? Basically meaning, Were you and Abraham friends at some point? You're not even 50 years old. How could you be a friend to Abraham? How do you know Abraham? How do you know what he was thinking? And Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. Before Abraham was born, I am. That doesn't really make uh, literary sense, does English? If we're speaking in English, he should have said, I was. But he says, I am. And this phrase right there was like he pulled a trigger. And what they were tolerating in terms of his arguing and debating with them and telling them who he was, when he said, I am, they picked up stones ready to take his life. Why? Because he used the same phrase that, was, that God used, Jehovah God, the Father used when the burning bush and Moses, that whole episode there. Moses asked God, who, well, if I go to Egypt, who shall I say sent me? And God said, tell them I am that I am sent you. And that's what Jesus said. Jesus is saying here, I am God. Paul has told us here in Colossians that Jesus is the exact representation, the akon, the image of God. He's also the ranking heir over all creation. And verse 16 explains succinctly what Paul means by the phrase, the firstborn of all creation. Jesus was not created. It says, for by him all things were created. Can we have that up there, please? Is that not there? Maybe not. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. I want to just share quickly, and I know my time is going. I want to share with you four little things about that section of the word. Jesus is creator of the universe, of all things visible and invisible, whether they exist in time or whether they exist in eternity. I love reading, when I'm preparing for messages, I love reading Adam Clark. Now, he's an old dead guy. But let me tell you, he can say it. He can help me get it. And I want to read you a, a little sentence here by Adam Clark. He says, Creation is the proper work of an infinite, unlimited, and origin, unoriginated being, pet, possessed of all perfections in their highest degree." capable of knowing, willing, and working infinitely, unlimitedly, and without control. And as creation signifies the production of being, where all was absolute non-entity, so it necessarily implies that the Creator acted of and from Himself. Now, that's that's amazing set of words right there. Let me see if I can break it down. What he's saying is that creation came from a being that was unoriginated. He had no beginning. Jesus 
is that unoriginated one. He is one with the Father. I don't get, I've tried to think about it. What was, the, what was it like when, as Genesis say, says, it was chaos and it was all dark on the face of the deep? I don't even, I can't even fathom. Where was God in all of that? And then he, he works because he's capable of all knowledge. He has a will to act on what he knows. He uh, says he's perfect in, his, in the highest degree, and he does it without control. There's no one to tell him, well, make it this way, don't make it that way, make this first, make that last. God was in total control. And he made something out of nothing. Jesus is the creator, according to this word, and I believe it. Jesus was the one who made all that we can see and cannot see. Number two, that whatsoever was created was created for himself, that he was the sole end of his own work. All of the created order, what is seen and unseen, was created for his enjoyment and his pleasure. You were created by him, and you were created for his enjoyment and pleasure. He takes delight in his creation, and he takes delight in you. And as you and I, as we stand in the righteousness of Jesus, that delight flows to us in unhindered ways. The joy of Christmas. We sang joy to the world this morning. The joy of Christmas is the Father expressing His delight in you through His Son, Jesus Christ. That's marvelous. Many will look for Christmas joy in all the wrong places, and you and I both know they will not find it. Here's the chorus of the old Christmas carol. Come and worship, come and worship, worship Christ the new Born King. That's what we're to do. That's the superlative response to everything Christmas. Two more things to hit. He was prior to all creation, to all beings, whether in the, in the visible or the invisible world. Creation simply has to have a beginning. I don't believe in evolution. Jesus created it out of nothing. If Jesus was anything less than God, he would have been part of creation. But he was before creation. He existed eternally. He has no beginning and no end. And then lastly, that he is the preserver and governor of all things. For by him in all things consist and hold together. Do not even begin to think. And we're tempted right now. I've said things that go against what I'm about to tell you. I said it in the last few months. Probably said it in the last few weeks. Don't begin to think that this world is spinning out of complete control. It is not. It looks bad. Worse than I've seen it in a long time. And let me tell you, God is in control. The Christ is watching over us. And you can trust Him. And come what may, it may get bad. But who's got a hold of it? It all consists. It all is managed. He is the, what does uh, my line say? He's the preserver and governor of it all. Don't let the world's clutter chaos, and confusion smear or soil your worship of Jesus. Believe that He is, and that, again, another song, He's got the whole world in His hands. 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 And He's not going to let go of it. 
He's watching over it. You can rest assured. Well, I want you to get your communion cup ready. And I'm just going to wrap real quick here. This, these last few verses, I'm just going to hit them very fast. It says Jesus is head of the body, the church. He's beginning. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. Now, before he said he's the firstborn of all creation. Now he's the firstborn of the dead. I found in 1 Corinthians, I think it's chapter 15, Paul says a similar thing, but he uses a different word. And I, I want to use that to help you understand a little bit about what Paul means here in Colossians. In 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 23, Paul says, Now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. He uses a different phrase, but it means pretty much the same thing. In, in the culture of Israel in that time, there were three festivals in the spring. One was the Passover. The next one, they were right in order. They went right together. Passover, first fruits, and Pentecost. They all happened in the same season. Christ was crucified on Passover. He was raised from the dead and the Holy Spirit given. Actually, he was raised from the dead on Passover. But the Holy Spirit came to ignite the church at Pentecost. But the time Jesus raised from the dead was first fruits. And he's, when, when the Israelite would take his grain offering or his whatever produce into dedicated to God, the priest would do a wave offering, north, south, east, and west, and give it to God, sacrifice it. If God was pleased with it, it was a sign that there would be more harvest come. And they could go away rejoicing, going, oh, God's going to bless us. Jesus is the first fruit. And there's a greater harvest to come. And the baby in the manger came for one reason. To bring in the harvest. To bring in the souls. Because God delights in His creation and He delights in us. That's what it's all about. Listen, if we don't, as a church, continue to preach the Word, the world can go dark. It's our job to keep the light on. And that's what we're about. So I want to encourage you today. Know that as you worship Him, that God was pleased to have all the fullness of His presence in, his, in that baby. When He was in the womb, when He was born, and as He grew... God put His fullness right there. And you can come and worship Him. Here's what I want to do. I'm going to have a prayer. And then you're going to take communion as the Lord would have you. He came to save us through the blood. He made make peace through the blood of His cross. That leads us to communion. Now I want you to just say in your heart right now, Lord, I worship You. Is there anything you need to filter out of me that is greater than anything I should be doing as a believer in Christmas? Again, I'm not trying to disparage anything. I just believe the Lord wants to lift high the Lord, the Savior of the world. So let's have a minute or two for you to take communion as you desire. Uh, they're going to sing for a while. I'll come back and then speak a blessing and have you have you released. Father, we just ask you now as we as we come to the communion table, as we take of the, the bread, which is your broken body, as we drink of the cup, which is your blood shed for us, would you just purify our hearts and souls, speak to us, and help us to trust you more as Savior, Lord, and Master, and King in Jesus.